First things first, Louise, I, I have to ask, is this your first time in Cornwall? Because I believe you're one of those Londoners who goes east rather than west. Uh, I am. Well, uh, as a child, we always came to Devon and Cornwall on oh. our caravan holidays. So holidays when I was growing up, uh, my parents didn't have much money, so there's never anything abroad. But we did. they did have a caravan uh, parked in the drive, and it was always uh, Devon or Cornwall. And when you grow up in the East Midlands, to see the sea is amazing because um, I grew up in possibly the most landlocked town in the entire country. If you put a pin in the middle of England, it sort of lands more or less where I grew up. I was born in Melton Mowbray. So, to, I, I so just great pies, but no sea. Great pies, but absolutely no sea. And the minute I see the, the narrow lanes and the tall hedges, it, I associate it with childhood holidays and freedom. So I'm very, very fond of this part of the world. Oh, good. That's, that's lovely to hear. Well, uh, that's a far cry from the setting of your most recent novel, Platform yes, 7. Yes, the thing about the East Midlands is you can leave, but you never really get away. <laughs> um, you can take the girl out of the East Midlands, as they say. You can't take the East Midlands out of the girl. And um, Platform 7 is set mostly on Peterborough Railway Station, which I know seems like a rather odd choice to set a novel. And in fact, indeed, is a rather odd choice to set a novel. <laughs> and in fact, everybody who worked on Peterborough Railway Station also thought I'd made a very odd choice. Um, <laughs> I, I did get very uh, friendly with the staff there. I had special permission from the station manager to spend the night there when it was closed to the public. Um, freezing cold November very night. Very creepy. Really creepy. Mist floating along the tracks. I'm there in my parka jacket and my fingerless gloves and my beanie hat. It's a look best described as bag lady with laptop. <laughs> And the staff, after a while, would go, I'd, I'd get the train up, and they'd go, oh, hi, Louise, how's the book going? Is that right? Or again, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was very strange. I immediately assumed it was born out of book tours, because on a book tour, you do end up spending an awful lot of time in, um, well, Peterborough's quite glamorous compared to some of the <laughs> some of them, stations yeah. you end up um, in. Yeah, it was actually, because I, the town I grew up in in the East Midlands, I had to go to Peterborough. I went to university in Leeds. Um, and that involved changing trains at Peterborough Railway Station when I went back um, to see my parents. And then I went and did the MA in Creative Writing at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. And then when I went home, I had to change at Peterborough Railway Station when I went to see my parents. I then moved to London for the next 30 years of my life. And when I visited my parents, I had to change trains at Peterborough Railway Station. And in the 1980s, um, there's one thing you could guarantee about Peterborough Railway Station on a cold winter's night. Um, and well, actually, there were two things you could guarantee. The first was that the waiting room would be closed and locked. <laughs> and the second was that the ladies' toilet would be closed and locked. And my standing joke for many years was that if I had been bad in life and died and went to purgatory, I would find myself trapped on Peterborough bloody <laughs> railway station in a, on a winter's night. And actually, that is how Platform 7 came about, because it is a metaphor for purgatory, and it's narrated by a ghost, by a dead woman, who has died and is trapped on Peterborough railway station um, until the mystery of her death has solved. Oh, we're um, laughing now, but it's not a laughy book. I it, mean, it's not. It's not. It's another cheerful little number from Louise. <laughs> I think one thing you can guarantee about my books is uh, whatever you want to call them. There's always somebody who's destined not to die peacefully in their own beds. Mm. Um, and indeed, Lisa, the narrator, has not died peacefully in her own bed. She's died on the station. And there's a central mystery to the book is, um, you know, did she jump or was she pushed? What's happened? 
I interviewed a local high court judge when I was doing the research for the book. And um, judges are great people because they deal with local crime. They can tell you all about the secrets of a community and what the community is really up to. And um, I said, you know, rather facetiously, it's my novel's about a woman who's died on the station. You don't know if she jumped or if she's pushed. And he growled, this is Peterborough. She was definitely pushed. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that really fascinates me about your work is that it, it doesn't fit comfortably into a tight genre because you borrow, you, you marry genres. Yeah. And you frequently, certainly for this and your, its predecessor, Apple Tree Yard, the reader begins thinking they're in one sort of book, and then it changes direction. Is this something you consciously do, or does, is it just the plot that comes to you is, it requires oh, I, I take myself terribly seriously, Patrick. I'm convinced I'm a literary genius. <laughs> and then everybody goes, oh, there's all these deaths and people, come on, Louise. Um, Apple Tree Art's an interesting example because that was the first novel where I suppose I, I, I sort of found myself. I mean, it sounds facetious, but really by accident in this psychological thriller um, category. And when I delivered it to Faber, I said, oh, look, I've written a feminist indictment of criminal justice. And they said, oh, a best-selling thriller. Thank you. <laughs> and I went, oh, really? Oh, OK. Um, and I think in many ways, I think it's the writer's job not to worry about what yeah. sort of book you're writing. Because I think if you worry too much about what category you're going to fit into, how you'll be marketed, where you fit, um, I think you can tie yourself in knots trying to fulfil the needs of a particular yeah. and it will feel like, And it will read unspontaneously. It will it feel will. willed rather than felt. Yes, um, I, I think the novelist's job is to write the novel in your heart to the best of your ability. And then you hand these pages, this amorphous mass to your publisher, and you say, look, turn it into a book-shaped yeah. thing. <laughs> and it is their job to take that amorphous mass, that complex, nuanced imperfect story that you've written and to turn it into a book-shaped thing, something that can be sold as a product and fit in a, a jiffy bag. But as a writer, don't worry about that. You know, you tell, tell your story. Because what I love here is you've married um, a supernatural, a ghost story, in effect, mm. it begins as a ghost story. It then turns into uh, a very uh, terrifyingly realistic portrayal of a very bad marriage. I mean, you know, yeah. coercive control gone haywire yeah. um, but it's also in a way a whodunit although the person solving the whodunit is the one who is done to um. yes uh, and really uh, that subject matter grew out of that central question the question of did she jump or was she pushed I mean one of the first things I found out is that it's actually extremely hard to murder somebody on a railway station and should any of you have been considering your own homicide, I strongly advise you to choose a different venue. Because railway stations have CCTV in everywhere. every corner, yeah. everywhere these days. And this was a contemporary story. Um, the other thing I was very determined about in the early stages of the book is that my heroine, in fact, none of my heroines ever become self-destructive because that seems to me such a 19th century trope. You know, Anna Karenina throws herself under the train, Emma Bovary swigs the arsenic. This idea that a woman who steps out of line, particularly in terms of her sexual morality, must then punish herself and become self-destructive. So I knew that that was not my story. So then I started to think about the ways in which 
a toxic relationship could lead to Lisa, the main character's death. And obviously, I'm, I'm not going to give away the way in which it actually happens. But I was very clear that I wanted responsibility for her death to be with somebody else, to be with mm. this man mm. um, with whom she's in a very bad relationship and not herself. And the ways in which that might happen. Um, and of course, when it comes to the issue of coercive control and manipulation, um, a novel is such a gift because you have three or four hundred pages with which to explore it. And the issues around coercive control and manipulation are always about the accumulation of events. If you take one single thing that a person says or one mm. single thing that a person does, then that can often be explained away. But it's about a day in, day out erosion of somebody's ability to trust themselves. It's about constantly undermining somebody until they no longer trust their own judgment. And that kind of slow process, a, a novel is just a, a brilliant place in which to explore that. And I think what's fascinating is the parallel between that and the way you treat your reader, because in all your most recent novels, I think, you've become a, a mistress of the art of drip-feeding information. So we don't know everything at the beginning by any means, and it comes through very slowly. And the reader, rather like the heroine, begins to not trust their own feelings and their own judgments. And in this book, the reader knows from the start that she's going to die. And what I found so fascinating was I was sort of gauging my own feelings as I read it, and I found I was still willing her to, to, to survive and to escape. And I kept thinking, no, 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 she's going to die. But you can't stop urging the heroine not to make the choices she makes or whatever. That, so. That's great. I'm really pleased you said that because the, the first third of the book you, is Lisa narrating as a ghost. And then in the middle third, it's a, a large flashback scene where you go back into her previous life and you find out about the relationship. And you already know that it is going to lead to her death. But of course, Lisa, as she is narrating that middle section, doesn't. So you, the reader, know more than she does. Mm. And then in the final third, she's back on the station as a ghost, but with a full memory of what's happened to her, and the two strands of the narrative come together. But that middle section uh, was, it, it, interestingly, um, the quickest and easiest bit to write because it had that kind of, if you like, that sort of pull towards the end. You know, yeah, I, I yeah. was heading relentlessly towards the event, um, the event of her death. Fascinating, and there's a parallel with with um, psychotherapy in a way that that, that you're, you, she's had this terrible trauma mm. at the beginning of the book, and then you know it's almost the you or the, the novelist are being the therapist, helping her rediscover yeah. and piecing it together, um, while traumatizing the poor reader. Could you <laughs> could you read us uh, sure. give us a taste that won't give away too much of the, the yes, denouement? Yes, I will. Uh, what I'm going to do is, is read a bit that occurs at the very end of that flashback section. So um, in that first third, we've seen Lisa on the station. And as Patrick says, she has no memory of who or what she was. And as a ghost, she is pure consciousness. She's not a, a lady in a floaty white dress. And um, for any of you writing your own novels, really don't do, uh, don't do write from the point of view of a ghost. It causes so many problems. Because the first thing you have to work out is what are the rules of the game? Um, what can your ghost do or not do? For instance, if your ghost is a poltergeist, if they can knock over mugs of coffee or bang open doors, that means they can communicate with the exterior world. And I didn't want that. And I also found you have to be very careful with the use of verbs. 
when you write from the point of view of a ghost because if you the minute you use verbs like whisk or float or flow your ghost starts sounding like Casper do you remember yeah. Casper the friendly <laughs> ghost and she definitely wasn't Casper so for that first third she has been pure consciousness but consciousness with no memory of what has happened to her and then there's something that happened on the station that unlocks her memory and we, we go back into flashback and we find out about her relationship with a young man called Matty. And Matty is a junior doctor at the Peterborough City Hospital. Um, he's in his 30s, he's very charming, he's single. And Lisa is 36 years old and of an age where you know, she's the only child of older parents who very much want grandchildren. All her, she's very much of the age where there is still a huge amount of pressure on young women to partner up and Matty seems eminently eligible. And all her friends start making jokes about buying the hat and setting the date almost immediately. They have a very passionate um, early relationship and very, very quickly he moves into her apartment, which is a very small apartment in the, um, just not far from the station. And from that point, the relationship starts to darken and becomes more and more toxic and more and more controlling to the point where she begins to doubt her own sanity and we realize that this relationship is going to end in her death. Um, and so this short section, it takes about five minutes to read, um, is at the very end of that flashback, it's about three weeks before she dies. And it's a moment where she is really on the point of a breakdown, Lisa, and she has now reached a point of total mistrust about her own judgment. But she does know that something is very wrong between her and Matty. And she started suffering from insomnia, and she wakes up in the middle of the night, and Matty um, isn't beside her. So she goes out into the sitting room, and she finds him there. Um, and this is the the section that ends that flashback section. After this, we're going to go back to Peterborough Station and she will have a full memory of what's happened to her. Um, so this is Lisa. Um, she's woken up and she's gone out into the sitting room. Um, Matty is sitting on the floor with the balcony doors open, looking out over the garden. I walked closer to him, my bare feet soundless on the carpet. I stood behind him, no more than a metre away, and looked down. I noticed for the first time that there were the faintest signs of his hair thinning at the crown. It was as if his much older self was layered over his present self in that moment, in that pose. Still motionless, he seemed at once an old man and a young boy, sitting on the floor, thinking and waiting for something. In the Matthew of now, I could see Matthew as a child and Matthew as an elderly person, the whole of him encapsulated in that one translatable po posture. I took a step towards him. Still, he did not turn, although I was close enough for him to hear my breathing now. What is it about us, women, I mean, that we are so tender when men drop their guard just for a moment and let their capacity for weakness show? Is it some deeply imprinted desire to mother? Or is it simply that it feels such a relief to get a glimpse of their susceptibility and to know that in that moment 
the tables are turned. Looking down at Matthew and seeing the young him and the old him together at once, I was filled with the desire to kneel down behind him and take him in my arms, to wrap my arms around his chest from behind and rest the side of my head against the side of his and rock him, comfort him. Perhaps he would cry a little then and turn to me. Perhaps it was all going to be okay. This might have happened, but before it could happen, he spoke. He stayed motionless, but his voice was clear in the darkness. It was plain and cold. I'm not good for you. There was something about the simplicity with which he spoke. No games, no provocations, just a simple fact. The truth of it made me feel gripped by fear, a sensation as real and as physical as if someone was squeezing my heart in their fist, I did not know what to say. If I agreed with him, it meant the end of our relationship, there and then. Yet any contradiction of what he said would be a lie, and we both knew it. As I stood there, trapped in that moment, I could not even explain my own fear to myself, the heat that rose to my face, for it was more than fear, of course, it was foresight. I knew that whatever happened between Matthew Goodison and me from now on, it was going to end, and end badly. There was no way out of this that would not entail unpleasantness. It was just a question of what form it would take and how bad it would be. I stood there for a long time. He sat in silence. His back to me, looking out over the garden. Outside, there was nothing. No sound and no movement, only darkness. The plain square of grass, the empty benches, the austere and unforgiving night. Oh, very good, thank you. Because inevitably, those of us who are totally gripped by the TV version of Apple Tree Yard will want to know, is this going to be adapted? Has it been adapted? It's in development, as they say. <laughs> okay. And those of you who know anything about the TV industry will know that that means absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> it's in development. We have got uh, a top, top screenwriter doing the adaptation, who is Paula Milne. Oh, amazing. Amazing, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, who did The Politician's Husband, The Politician's Wife. She was back in the 70s, one of the very first uh, women screenwriters on Coronation Street, she created Angel. So, I mean, she's just like top of yeah. her game. Doesn't normally knew, do adaptations. I think the only one she's done is she did The Night Manager, the Sarah Waters, yes, and she did Small Island, the Andrew yeah. Levy. So it's a great coup to get her. And yeah, it's, it's ongoing. It's an ongoing process. She's done an episode one, a pilot, which I think is terrific. So now we're waiting on broadcasters, stars, um, uh, a lot of the commissioning process these days is about getting a star uh, yeah. to express an interest in the project before the broadcaster's green light. That's very common now. Because I so. bet the moment you got Emily Watson on board at yeah. the yard, it just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we were is, home is she going to respect the structure of the book, do you think? I don't know. I mean, Paula's... She's, she's pretty she's, senior, so... <laughs> she's pretty <yeah>. senior. <laughs> she will do her own thing. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. even though I'm an executive producer, um, 
She's fantastic, Paula. She, I did ask her once about um, you know, how she felt about dealing with producers, and she was telling me about one instant where a producer had objected to a particular scene and had said to her, Paula, I don't think it's working. And I said to him, Louise, it was working fine when it came out of my printer this morning. <laughs> um, so it's a bit like, whoa. Oh, <laughs> I must just, remember that you, line. You yeah. criticised Paula at your apparel. But I know that whatever she will do will be good, you know, so it's fine. There comes a point, um, as I'm sure you know all too well, where you just have to kind of let go of the project and you have to say the people who are making it are going to do their own thing and yeah. you can cheer from the sidelines and that's about it. Yes, and just cling to that line in your contract on the first day of principal photography, yes. the author <laughs> shall receive dot, dot, yes, dot. And yes. Yeah, yeah, that's what matters. Yeah. Could we go sideways a bit and talk about feminism and, for want of a better word, thrillers, because mm. I think your work really, it's sort of at the pinnacle of what a lot of people, a lot of women writers, but some men as well, are trying to do at the moment, which is exploring current issues in rela relationships, motherhood, whatever, through the, the kind of lens of the thriller. Yeah. Um, and it, it fascinates me because you seem to be, on the face of it, a, a, a happy, fulfilled person, <laughs> and yet you are repeatedly drawn to these extremely dark, Kind of plots. I mean, yeah. you know, from a, a, a stone cradle onwards. I mean, the Apple Tree Yard, most obviously, but mm. also Whatever You Love. My yeah. God, that's one of the darkest novels I have ever read about mm. motherhood, loss, bereavement, and mental illness, and yeah. all the cheerful things. Yes, um, I know, and I seem so normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I want to know about the appeal, the appeal of it for you, and you, what do you think the appeal of it is, especially to women readers? Is it there but for the grace of God? I mean, yeah. do you write it so that it won't happen to you? Um. Um, it was interesting. I wrote Whatever You Love, which is about a, a, a child is killed in a hit and run accident at the time when my own elder daughter was just getting old enough to leave the house on her own. It's because Betty is, what, nine years yes, old when yeah, she's killed? Yeah, which is a really, you know, a terrifying yeah. time and about the worst thing that could happen to anyone. And um, my partner really hated it. He felt as though somehow choosing this appalling subject matter would somehow bring it upon Make it. Make it happen. Mm. And I felt the opposite because I thought I was somehow protecting us by writing about it because how absurd would it be if I wrote mm. a novel and mm. then it actually happened? Mm. Um, and I think there is certainly an element of we write out of our own worst fears. Sure. And whenever I, I used to teach writing, as you mentioned a lot, I always said to people, you know, what do you feel strongly about? What is the thing that makes you most angry, most terrified, most passionate? What's your greatest fear in life? Because that is where your novel lies. You know, novels, you have to feel passionately about the subject matter because you're going to be living with it for a long time and you're going to have to go very, very deep mm. and delve deep to write about it. So, you know, to me, that's the nature of the novel. At the most fundamental level, a novel is about something happening. You know, it is about creating uh, an event, a series of events. In a way, a, a short story might be about a court moment or a realisation, but novels, by and large, are about the big things in life that happen. I do think there is also a gendered aspect to this, in that because I'm a woman with big teeth um, and very smiley, is there is a tendency for people always ask, why are you so dark? I'm not sure Ian McEwan gets asked why he's well, so dark. Well, anyone can see he's dark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take one look at him, yeah. Um, 
So I think there is still a certain element of surprise that women mm. writers are doing this. Why would this? Because actually our role is to be, you know, pleasing and cheering. Our role is to make yeah. people feel more cheerful, yeah. not to make them feel wretched at all the terrible things that can happen. So I'm not sure that in comparison, I think my male equivalent there would probably be less surprise yes. that my material is dark. I think, I think know, the surprise with the male equivalent, you know, the mm. S.J. Watsons of this world, is that yeah. they're a man choosing to write from a female perspective, which yes, is yes, an interesting departure point. for them. Yeah. But um, what do you think about this, this genre that is sort of seeming, I don't know what it's called yet, no. but in, uh, you know, unreliable female narrators who turn out to be psychopaths or yeah. um, inhabited by the vengeful ghost of a gay man in one yeah. notable <laughs> yes, case. Yes. I mean, does it baffle you, mm. the, the, the way it's, it's grown? No, so? not at all, really. Mm. I think that um, I think that a lot of, well, I'm going to make a vast generalization here uh, with the caveat <laughs> that all generaliz generalizations are invidious. But I think particularly for middle-aged women, as um, we sort of head through a certain phase of our lives, that feeling that there is a lot of unrealized anger and fury, mm. um, I think goes very deep in a lot of women, um, particularly of a certain age, particularly if you've spent two or three decades doing the right thing, raising the children, um, making the sacrifices, keeping a relationship together, running a house, as well as all the other things. I think the amount of suppressed rage is um, should possibly alarm men rather more than it does. Um, in fact, it's a miracle we don't smother you all in after your sleep. Um, I just think it, it doesn't surprise me at right. all. It doesn't surprise me that women want to write it, and it doesn't surprise me that women want to read yeah. it. I think one of the things that's so powerful in whatever you love is what begins as a, a really strong... And, and, and shockingly raw depiction of, of grief, the first days of after having your child killed, yeah. um, then morphs into a vengeance novel, mm. which rang completely true for me, because you know, one of the stages, everyone always says, of grief is, yeah. is anger and lack of acceptance. But you really kind of turn the volume up and push it I do, I level. do. And um, also the fact that there's a lot of sublimated rage in Laura in Whatever mm. You Love because she's had a very bad marriage breakup and she has done the right thing yeah. and stayed civil and she's been with a, a man who's left her for somebody else and when their children are very small. And the fact that it is almost as though, you know, she's suddenly free of her shackles. Because this appalling thing has happened, that's it she now has the excuse to express all the rage that I think, yeah. has, uh, uh, the unfairness of life. That it's I a bit like the Trojan women. Suddenly mm. she's just free to become yeah. this mad Yeah, those beast. Greeks, they, they <laughs> understood female rage. They didn't have any problem with it, tell you. <laughs> Nothing new under Medea. Yep. Yeah. She was clearly hadn't been on the HRT, that's for sure. <laughs> which brings us very neatly to Apple Tree Yard, which is your possibly most transgressive um, heroine to date. Yes. Um, who begins, she begins with what seems to be the perfect goody-two-shoes life. Mm. Might be a bit dull, but yeah. it's virtuous and, and um, you know, fulfilled, and she has a job and a husband and children and everything is la-la-la. Mm. And then suddenly she starts having an um. ominous, quite violent sex in broom cupboards. And yeah. like, yeah. um, Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> 
Where the hell did that one come uh, from? Yeah, people always ask that, funnily enough. In fact, that broom cupboard, there was an, an interesting... Um, Does it have a little plaque by it now? No, I bet it should Westminster do, should it? Yeah. Um, I, I had quite good contacts in the Metropolitan Police after years and years, um, and I managed to get hold of the, um, the police officer who is in charge of emergency and events planning in the Houses of Parliament because I needed a tour of all the secret places because I knew this was where my first transgressive sex act. And this guy was very, very sweet. And um, we, we had a you know, tour lasting two or three hours, the whole history, everything. And he was telling me all this very learned facts. And I'm wandering around the corridor going, there's a disabled toilet. Um, there's no CCTV there. Um, and making all these notes. And then he did, as um, Costly does in Apple Tree Yard, he got the key from the security guard to go down. You're wondering where this story is going. <laughs> You're thinking this will make a good tweet yeah. to publicize the festival. <laughs> Apple Tree Yard author <laughs> reveals. Um, it's the chapel of St. Mary Undercroft, which is underneath the Great Hall of Westminster. Yeah. Um, and um, MPs can get married uh, there, or um, I think Thatcher Lane stayed yes. there before her funeral. Uh, they can christen their children. But most of the time, it is kept locked up. And it's a beautiful, beautiful chapel with all these you know, medieval gargoyles. It's just one of these wonderful secret places. And I love secret places. And he did say, he said, oh, he, come here. And he showed me the broom cupboard where there is a plaque to Emily Wilding Davidson, who was the suffragette who threw herself beneath the uh, hooves of the king's horse at, at the Epsom, um, I think it was the Dar Epsom races, yep, Derby. Derby that's yeah. um, and she hid in that broom cupboard on the night of the 1911 census so that on the census she could register her place of abode as the Houses of Parliament at a time when women weren't allowed to vote. Yeah. And Tony Benn had a little plaque put up to her at the back of the door. And I saw this plaque and it's just like, you know, what authors call the light bulb moment. Yeah. It's like, you know, bing, yes, of course, this is, this is the, the scene. My, because here's this very rational woman, she's a geneticist, she's a highly qualified scientist, all her life has been rational, and then she commits this one irrational, irrational act, which is to have what I believe is colloquially known as a knee trembler um, <laughs> in this cupboard. Um, so anyway, uh, I had this idea, obviously I did not share this thought, uh, with the police officer, <laughs> um, but later, uh, I gave him a copy of the novel. <laughs> and I just thought, I had a vision of him reading that opening scene, thinking that dirty cow, you know. <laughs> That's what she was thinking when I showed her out. And he and his wife came to the launch party. Oh, so um, obviously, they didn't take it too badly. Um, there is an addendum to that, which is when they were filming the TV series, um, obviously, the Houses of Parliament denied us permission to fly, uh, to fly, to film within the Palace of Westminster. You know, you can have any number of people murdered and helicopters crashing on Westminster Bridge, but God, God forbid a woman has sex in the House of Parliament. Um, so we had to mock up that cupboard um, on a set. So they, they built a whole fake cupboard for that scene between Emily Watson and Ben Chaplin. And there's a point where they're up against the wall and he holds onto a coat hook for leverage and it came off in his hand <laughs> and he had to say guys I like you've got to think through the mechanics of this <laughs> I need leverage here you know that coat hook has to stay on the wall um, so yeah I mean what's interesting is that of course everybody thinks about that scene and it comes very early in the book so it's fair enough that people do 
But I did actually set myself up with uh, a creative problem there because the point about that scene is it's very out of character. Yvonne has never done anything like this mm. in her life. And when you begin a novel, when a reader reads it, they don't know, yet know the character. So they don't yet know it's out of character. So obviously it was a high risk strategy for starting a novel. And I just had to hope that people would stay with me. And then once they learned more about Yvonne, more about her marriage, they would come to understand why she had done this out of character thing. But of course, yet again, you are very cunningly jumping genres or blending genres because at, at that point in the book, the reader thinks, okay, this is going to be a novel about a successful woman in the middle of her life um, having a wobbly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and risking That's things. That's what you call it, is it, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a Cornish wobbly. term. It's a long, <laughs> long established Cornish term. Yeah, we all have wobblies Which down here, my lover. Well, my, my mind's boggling <laughs> now. But, <laughs> I meant in more general terms. Yeah. <laughs> but then, of course. You're blushing now. But then, if, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a sign, it's a sign of heightened sexual <laughs> responsiveness, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, I've made Patrick Gale blush. My work <laughs> is done. <laughs> doesn't take much. Um, but then, of course, there is the incredibly shocking uh, rape scene yeah. or sexual attack scene mm. from George, her, her work colleague, yeah. which is totally unexpected. And what's yeah. so brilliant is it's, it's um, because it's so unexpected, it feels very, very real. And they managed to do the same in the screen version. They did, it, yeah. It, it was and it, it's interesting because obviously that is the serious side of the novel. Mm. And... Um, I actually fought really hard to keep the R word out of the discussion. Right. I said, I don't want it in publicity. I don't want it in publicity for this series. I don't want it in the book. Um, in fact, you've reminded me that when I did book tour for Apple Triad, I took the chair of every discussion aside and said, do not describe this as a rape novel. And that's for two reasons. A, because a lot of women, quite understandably, will not want to go there. Mm -hmm. And that's perfectly, you know, we face enough threat of sexual violence in our real lives, a lot of women will go, mm, that's not for me. Yeah. But B, it's really important that that incident comes out of the blue, not from the stranger danger, the threat, you know, which is a tiny, tiny proportion of sexual yeah. assault, but from the harmless seeming work colleague. Yeah. And it she is knows and trusts the harmless and, seeming work yeah. colleague, the friend, your partner or husband, that is who we are all at risk uh, from. And so, I did have to get very firm and very political about that. And I also feel that the R word, which I, I dislike intensely, even though I know it's you know a, a common usage word, has been so debased by tabloid newspapers. Mm. It's so used as a cheap thrill to sell newspapers, um, to sell books, to sell films, that I will not use it. And I think the term sexual assault has at least the dignity of ambiguity. Yeah. Um, and that's something I feel very strongly about. And also I feel very strongly that we have to write about the things that affect us in our daily lives. And we have to write about the fact that these things happen to older women. Because the classic trope in movies and TV scenes is the victim is a beautiful young woman running through a darkened forest in a 90. Now, I'm sorry, that is a tiny, tiny proportion of victims. And the way in which that is used in a lascivious way, a way in which it is used to make the victim sexually attractive, to suggest that she's bringing it all on herself, I thought, we are long overdue for a story about the reality of what can happen to any um, you know, middle-aged woman who mm -hmm. makes the mistake of just trusting a colleague. Um, 
The shocking thing is how revolutionary that was considered to be. There were whole newspaper articles about the fact that this novel was led, the story was told, it was people by a middle-aged woman. Mm. And, um, you know, there were whole headlines, middle-aged women have sex, as if it was like the greatest revelation <laughs> on God's earth. And um, that did shock me, actually, that I was told that I had done something revolutionary that, in this day and age, did surprise me. And what was, you also did, which was very powerful, was show her not reporting it and the reasons why she doesn't yeah. report it. And, and the fact that it, your lives, real lives are so mixed, so yeah. ambiguous, so messy, that you can't just say this bad thing has happened because yeah. of the risk that it will also damage her family, that yeah. her husband will find out she's been unfaithful yeah. and so on. Yeah. Um, really good. And it's so challenging to the reader as well. Were you happy with the way it was done on screen? Because sexual assault on screen is used so commonly now that yeah. the risk is people are being numbed to it. It's almost, yeah. I mean, Game of Thrones, I've found almost, un well, I did, I've never, I, found, I, I found it unwatchable very quickly because of the way it just cheapened. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't watch Game of Thrones for that reason. Um, I mean, I was in the hands of the, 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 the filmmakers, obviously, but I do know how very seriously they took that subject matter. And the director was a fantastic New Zealand director, Jessica Hobbs, who has actually just won an Emmy um, for she directed the last episode of the most recent series of The Crown. Um, and the endless, endless discussions that uh, she had with me, that she had with Emily Watson, that the, the whole production team had about how do we do this in a way that is not exploitative. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the very first time she met me, Jessica, she said something very smart. Um, she said, tell me your worst fear for this adaptation. And I said, the worst, my worst fear is that you make it exploitative, that you kind of sexy it up. No. Yeah. And she went, okay, right, do not worry. We are not going to do that. Um, and I mean, it's a very tricky balance because that scene is hard to watch and so it should be. But mm. how do you do it in a way that, does, that is not exploitative? And I, I, obviously I'm biased, but I think they pulled it off. No, I think, I think they did. It, 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 it was really shocking and it came at the end of the first episode and yeah. it was so not what anyone was expecting. Yeah. Did they also, I'm interested to know, just from a technical point of view, did they also use, um, did you have a, I, I believe it's called an intimacy advisor or an intimacy oh. counsellor? for the scenes between Emily and Ben? No, as far as I know, not, because it was just before uh, that happened. Um, but I do know that um, Ben and Emily knew each other uh, way back. And in fact, Emily was cast first. And then there was some difficulty in casting costly because a lot of men, big name male actors, would not take a part where they were playing second fiddle to a female lead. And Emily is in every single scene of Four yeah, Hours of Drama, yeah. and there were a lot of top-name men who turned the Wouldn't part down it. for that mm. reason. Mm. Um, but luckily, they got Ben, and Emily suggested Ben, and they'd made films before. They'd made a film um, set in Loch Ness with a Loch Ness monster called Water Something. I can't remember what it's called. Sounds deservedly sunk. Yeah, well, it was... It, what, <laughs> what was strange about that is that was one of those films I think it was around the year of the First World War where all it was was longing glances right, uh, and Ben said I said to Emily we'll get it's payback time for that film <laughs> where all we did is stare at each other and never say anything but he did say to her, he said I, I said to her go on Emily are you sure you want to do these scenes with a mate you know but I know that they were choreographed very carefully mm. that Jess did what I think intimacy coordinators do now which is there are no surprises there's no um, busking it 
that's talked through very, uh, you know, to the extent of I'm going to put my hand there, I'm going to, so yeah. everybody knows and what And you minimise the presence of the crew. Yeah, yeah it's a closed yeah. set. Yeah. There's, no, yeah. there's nobody else in the room um, mm. other than, you know, the cameraman. So that was purely salacious so. detail on my part. I was just curious to know. Yeah, um, yeah. Before I throw you to the mercy of the audience, because I know they're dying to ask <laughs> you questions, um, can we talk about what you're doing now? Because I believe you've started crossing the floor to write your own I have. I've script. gone over to the dark side. Um, after the success of Apple Triad, a lot of TV companies came knocking, even though I didn't do the adaptation. It was done um, very well by Amanda Coe. But there is that funny thing in the world of telly where, you know, once you're associated with a success, it's like some of the sort of gold dust filters off on you. And I got taken to a lot of breakfast meetings by executives who ordered a mushroom and then pushed it around a plate with a fork. Um, because that's what TV executives do. They don't, when you meet them for breakfast, they don't actually eat breakfast. That's all. Um, and being a writer and loving a free meal, I'm mm. like, full English. <laughs> um, and so eventually, I, I have actually now had uh, my own first original drama for TV is about to be filmed. Uh, so that's a deeply scary moment. Uh, it's a three-part drama. We've got Keely Hawes in the lead Amazing. role, which is great. So hopefully it will be the big Sunday night, you know, 9 p.m. drama next year. And in two weeks' time, I fly out to the Canary Islands where we're shooting it, and it's three weeks' prep and a seven-week shoot. And with any luck, it'll be in the can by the end of the year and hopefully on screens maybe this time next year. And is so. it a cheerful story of a woman happily married? Yeah, you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> actually, guns and helicopters. Oh, OK. People die. Cool. Lots of people die, actually. Um, yeah, is no, that rage? Another is that rage coming out again? Cheerful little number from Louise. Yeah. No, I, I didn't want to do a domestic drama. Mm. Uh, and also because it had to be an idea that was ineluctably a drama rather than a novel. Right. And so if it was going to be me writing for the screen, it had to be a big idea. Uh, the helicopters, I fear, will be CGI. I'm not sure the BBC One budget stretches to real helicopters. But there will be special forces. There'll be men in black. Um, and there are guns and people get shot. People cool. die. And how have you found the transition from the kind of mad solitude of writing a novel to mm. the insistent collaborative thing of writing a script where you, you have to show your work all the time. Yes, well, you know this one. It's very, very strange. I mean, when you're a novelist, you're like a kind of badger sort of hiding in your dark little muddy hole, just doing your own little thing. And then it's like somebody grabs you by the hind legs and drags you out of the little hole and then throws you onto a table where everybody is wearing dinner dress and there's a glittery chandelier and says, now tap dance. <laughs> um, it's very, very strange, and particularly the transition from one mm. to the other. I mean, I, as you can probably tell, am relatively gregarious for a novelist, <laughs> almost normal. And I, I like chatting and I like the meetings and I enjoy the collaborative process, but I think it's a question of balance. I mean, having now being nearly at the end of it, it's nearly being filmed, I'm longing to get back mm. to being a novelist. And in fact, for the first six months of next year, there's just a big line through the diary. Wonderful. And I'm just going back down into the little muddy hole. And, um, it's the and control. I think it's the control, it isn't is the it? Control. Because with the novel, you were in total control, but a yeah. script, you're not, because there's so much money involved. It's People want to know how expensive Nobody it's going to the be. Writers. Yeah, and also, yeah. as you know, the, when you write a screenplay, you're writing a blueprint. That's all you're mm. doing uh, for the actors and the director and everybody else. And so there is something disheartening about that. With a novel, you are God. You know, you get to control every single element of what happens. And it's, you do have to take a step back for the screenplay. 
I think it's time for questions. Um, we have a roving mic. It will be sanitized between questions, so don't <laughs> worry. There's a, a question over here. Sarah will bring the mic to you, and she will hold the mic, I suspect. That's right, so just don't be shy. <laughs> a, a short but, I think, very, very pivotal moment in Dapple Tree Yard is the very disturbing um, one about the chimpanzee experiment, mm -hmm. which is, of course, pivotal to the whole story as well. Um, just a simple question. Did you make that up, or is it true? I'm really glad you answered that, because I thought I had read it in a newspaper. When I came to write that, it's a very, very disturbing um, uh, episode about a, a chimpanzee experiment, as the gentleman says. I was convinced that I had read about it in a newspaper as something they used to do in the 1950s. And I put it in the book. And everybody's, everybody says, as you do, it's, and it, 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 it revolves around the point of which we would sacrifice the people we love to save our own skins. And as you say, it's emblematic of, of what happens at turning points in the book. And when the adaptation happened, um, the filmmakers came to me and said, look, Louise, the chimp experiment. Um, I know you said it's in a newspaper. We have hunted everywhere and we cannot find it. We can find mm. no record that this experiment actually happened. At which point I got quite alarmed. I thought, did I make that up? Because it is, it's actually very, probably the most disturbing thing in the book. Um, and I, I, that's a question I can't answer. But there, was, uh, there were actually public calls for the RSPCA to investigate, to come to me and find out where this thing had happened and to investigate the fact that it happened because it was so terrible. I was actually contacted online nice. by somebody who wanted to report me to the RSPCA to report the person who had actually done the thing. And I cannot answer that question. Nobody has been able to find a record of that experiment. But I am convinced I didn't make it up, but it would appear that I did. <laughs> but no chimps were harmed in the no making chimps of the were series, harmed. so that's no. fine. Next question, please. There were hands up. You aren't all shy. Oh. Um, Louise, this is really about your sort of process as a writer, and particularly about Platform 7. I'm just intrigued. You talked a bit about the research and going to Peterborough Station quite, quite a lot. I just wonder, do, do you tend to do that research before you start writing or during or after even? It's a bit left foot, right foot. So obviously you, you get the original idea for the setting. But then I do a lot of researching, writing a bit, researching again. I always think I need at least two visits anywhere because you go somewhere um, to just raise the question and then you write a bit and then you have to go back and find the answer. Um, and with Peterborough Railway Station, because I live fairly close to King's Cross in London, that was actually a really easy journey and I was up and down that line all the time. Uh, the previous novel, Black Water, was set in Indonesia. It's about political violence in Indonesia. And there was a moment in Peterborough on a cold winter's night where I thought, right, with the previous novel, I was walking the rice fields of barley at dawn. <laughs> and this one, I'm on Peterborough railway station. I find the process of going to track down my novel. I go out and hunt it like the woolly mammoth. To me, that's incredibly important, which is why I found the pandemic really hard, because I like to go out there. I like, like to walk around the streets. 
and think about the book. I find it very hard to get ideas in isolation just sitting at my desk looking at a blank screen. My mind goes blank too. But then if I'm sitting in the Pumpkin Cafe on the concourse at Peterborough Railway Station, I see someone I walk past and I think, yeah, I'm going to have you. You're going in my book. Um, so to me, it's, it's a rolling process and, and one I find very important. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. I saw another hand going up right at the back. Oh, no, we, we need you so we can record you for the podcast. So. Hi. Um, I must confess to not having read one of your novels. I'm so sorry. Lucky but you. But now, but now I absolutely am. Um, and I think it's been really... I'm always interested in what makes people write about what they write and what what they put into their stories. And one of the things I just wanted to ask you, did you always want to be a writer? Or is this something that's just kind of caught you by surprise when you weren't looking, really? And a, a secondary question is, do you have a pattern of writing as well? Do you have a set format that, or timetable that you work to? I'd just be interested as to how you create these amazing stories. Well, to take the first one first, I did write a first novel at the age of 11, um, which was a, the big children's hit of that era was Watership Down. Do you remember it? The Talking Rabbits. Mm -hmm. And anthropomorphization of animals was very, very big in children's literature. So I wrote a book about talking horses. Um, they were horse, wild horses living on the plains of the Midwest America. They not only spoke to each other, they also wore hats for reasons that are not now not clear to me. And for a girl who had never left the East Midlands and never sat on a horse in her life, it was a very strange subject matter. I think it was greatly influenced by my father loved the old black and white Western movies, the really early John Waynes, and they were always on the telly on a Saturday afternoon. Um, I wanted it to be a hardback, so I cut out the sides of a cereal packet and I glued them to it. I know, sweet, isn't it? Worrying, perhaps. Um, <coughs> And then, obviously, teenage years intervened, and I started taking my writing really seriously when I, I did the MA in my early 20s. Um, so in, the answer to your question is probably yes. I think I probably did always want to be a writer. Um, the second one about process, um, I wish I could dignify what I do <laughs> with the term process. It's not that organised. I mean, I'm certainly a... My productive hours, uh, sort of 9 a.m. to 12 noon, and it has to start with the first copy of the day. That's a very, very important thing. It's that first, it's like a kind of Pavlov's dog. You know, I start to bark on command. Once you give me caffeine, um, you know, if in doubt, caffeinate the writer, I think, mm. in, in any setting. And if I lose that early morning chunk, somehow that becomes a non-writing day. If I make the mistake of opening email, for instance, thinking, oh, I'll just reply to that, and then it's as though I've got my, I've got that head on, whatever head engages with the world. Um, and so to me, it absolutely, and quite often, historically, for many years, I've worked in cafes um, because I have the family at home. And even if the house is empty, which obviously it hasn't been for 18 months, um, you know, you go down to put the kettle on, you think, I'm going to take the chicken out of the freezer and then it'll be, and then suddenly you have a different head on. So for many, many years, I've left the house before breakfast. I've gone on a work, walk to a local cafe. I've sat down there. I've ordered you know, some scrambled eggs and a for my first coffee of the day, and then I've, I've done that. 
Um, and I think that's, that's probably me for the rest of my writing career, really, first thing in the morning. Oh, lots of questions now. <laughs> Wait. Hi, Louise. Um, we've, I've read two of your books, Apple Tree Yard and Platform 7, um, are, and you've spoken a about a couple of your others. Can you give us a very quick pricey of each of them so I know which one to buy? <laughs> Please, thank you. I will, this will be like a speed <laughs> test. <laughs> so first three novels, Crazy Paving Dance With Me, Honeydew. I think of those rather disparagingly as early work. <laughs> um, they have their moments, but I think I was young when I was writing them, and I regard those books as the apprenticeship. Um, You're finding your voice. Yes, yeah. I'm finding my voice, experimenting. Um, they were all people by young women roughly the same age as me. Crazy Paving was about my time as a part-time secretary for London Transport uh, during an IRA bombing campaign, chaos theory and all the rest of it. Uh, Dance With Me was um, ghosts, relationship, mental illness. Um, <laughs> don't know where that came from. Um, Honeydew is actually about a girl who murders her parents. Um, I would like to say that my parents at the time were alive and well, but it was set where I grew up um, in the East Midlands. Then with novels four and five, I took a sort of uh, a dramatic leap in that I wrote two big historical novels um, based on my own ancestry, my own family ancestry. So Fires in the Dark is about a group of nomadic Calderash Roma caught up in the events of the Second World War. So 20s, 30s and 40s in Central Europe, um, ending with the Prague uprising. Because you have Roma heritage. Because I have Roma heritage, yeah. Right. So that was me exploring my own ancestry. Um, I also had two children at the same time whilst writing that book, so it, there was, it took me a, a long time. It was very foolish of me. Um, the big historical canvas. Um, and then Stone Cradle was very much about my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandmother, which is English Romana Charles at the end of the 19th, early 20th centuries. And as we're talking about career paths, though both of those books were critically very well received, but they didn't do any great sh shakes in sales. It was not a fashionable subject. If one of those books had taken off and been a major bestseller, I would now be sitting here and Patrick would be asking me questions about what it's like being his an historical novelist because I would have been mm. under pressure to keep writing historical books, big family saga books, um, to talk more about my ethnicity. And that is the kind of novelist I would become. You know, we all get stereotyped by whatever is successful, I think. Um, so those were the first five, and then I moved to Faber and Faber, my current publishers, with Whatever You Love. And I would say that from then on, I fall roughly into the psychological thriller category. Whatever You Love, Apple Tree Yard, Blackwater, Platform 7, and the 10th novel, which I'm working on at the moment, will be roughly in that category. So oh, I did it, didn't I? I did yeah, you did. Really good. I think we have time for one last question, and I think Teddy. Oh, 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 you're right. Two, two last questions. Okay, and then we must yeah, stop. The issue I'm sort of interested in is, if I can do it with a smile, is um, just how you cope with the idea of not trivialising really big issues. And I notice, like today, we laugh easily at terms like mental illness, and mm. um, we haven't laughed at rape, um, but um, when you were talking about the railway line at the beginning, I was thinking, oh God we live on a railway line in the countryside which is frequently used for suicide yeah. it's very and when you do your walk that morning it's terribly affecting and i don't even know anything about it i just see the police van and i s sat and looked at you for an hour now and mm. thought oh god 
how do you confront your day and how do you manage your whole career based on not trivialising yeah. stuff and entertaining? And yeah. that I find that really fascinating as someone who loves literature, not as a criticism of what you're doing. Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And I think it's a question that any writer or dramatist or filmmaker has to ask themselves. You know, when you write about terrible things uh, to entertain, which is what a lot of drama and entertainment mm. and novels are, um, I think the best you can do is to, to do it responsibly, to do it to the best of your opinion, to constantly question and criticise yourself and your own practice, to talk to people, if you can, who have real life experience, of those events in order to make it as authentic as possible. And I mean, obviously, you know, I'm being facetious in this setting, but I don't think the books are facetious in any way. And I don't think they trivialize these incidents. And I think the trouble is, is that the alternative is silence. And the book that I had the most trepidation about was Whatever You Love because it was about a child being killed in a car accident. And that is a terrible, terrible thing, the worst thing you can imagine that has happened to real people. And I read a lot of first-hand accounts, a lot of memoirs by parents who had lost children. I took it incredibly seriously. I went there in my own head in a way that was incredibly painful. And the, the most humbling experiences of my entire career were the emails or comments I got from people in fact, somebody who was running a literary festival that I appeared at wrote to me and said, I just want you to know, because I, won't, I know I won't be able to tell you in person, but this happened to me, and I think you got it right, and thank you. And uh, there is nothing, there is no good review or literary prize that would ever mean as much to me as that comment. And I think that is all you can do as a writer, because the bottom line is you can write about difficult things, Real people have to really go through difficult things, you know. And a lot of people, Fires in the Dark is essentially a Holocaust novel. And I was quite irritated by people who said to me, oh, I couldn't possibly read that. It sounds far too upsetting. As if it reflected well on them. And I thought, you know what? That happened to real people. Real people were held in camps. Real people went into gas chambers. And anything that happened to real people I think we should have the imaginative capacity to think about what it is really like. Um, and because I think that's the way we increase empathy, is by understanding the terrible experiences that happen to other people. So sorry, that's a rather long justification of my art, if you like, and the whole art of invention. That is a very good note on which to end. <laughs>